0: Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zuma Radio.
1: We're back and we are switching gears. And we, before we do that, uh, just to the people who are waiting to have their say on that terrible terror bombing. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up. And uh, that's when you get to talk about uh, what you want to talk about. So please call back, Free For All Friday. But right now we are going to talk about hospital overcrowding. And overcrowding in hospitals has become the norm In Ontario, that according to information obtained by the Globe and Mail, that shows six hospitals whose acute care beds averaged over 100% occupancy rate in the last five years, and 89 hospitals that were above. 85% and 85% occupancy is considered the threshold and the ideal number for preventing the spread of infection and accommodating a sudden surge in the number of patients. So we'd like to hear from you if you're a patient who's been stuck in a so-called unconventional space, if you're a doctor, uh, and we've talked about this before, some blame funding. Uh, some blame short shortfalls in long-term care and home care that prevent many patients from leaving the hospital because they have nowhere to go after they receive the treatment they need in uh, the acute setting. So, right now, let's go to o- Ontario Medical Association President-elect Nadia Alam. Hi, Nadia. Hi,
2: Libby. That's Dr. So Nadia
1: Alam, of course. Sorry about that.
2: <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and please just call me Nadia.
1: Okay. Uh, so what's your take on on uh, these numbers published by the globe?
2: To be honest, I'm not surprised. We've been hearing stories like this from boots on the ground doctors, frontline doctors, frontline nurses, and now patients as well. right? The reason that it's hit the media in such a big way recently, is not because it's a problem all of a sudden this problem was actually identified a couple of years ago the Ontario Health Coalition was already talking about this coming prob- this becoming a problem what's happening now is that patients are getting fed up and because they're speaking out more people are paying attention they are the canaries I, I, in the coal mine, right?
1: Yeah, I I remember a situation where I I was uh, put overnight in a hospital in a situation that was so bad I asked them to please put me in the hallway, yep. <laughs> which they were able to accommodate. Yep. Uh, I I think people are used to that; nobody is surprised. I mean, I've always seen uh, patients in hallways. Uh, what is your take? What's the problem? The
2: problem is it's reached such a crisis point that hospitals before when there'd be a surge of illness right so like flu season or an epidemic like SARS then they would go over capacity they would call code gridlock or whatever name they want to call it code burgundy to try and manage the bed situation the bed crisis they were in now it's happening all the time flu season's over and yet Most of the hospitals in Ontario are still operating above 100% capacity, which means there's no reserve. And what's happening is frontline workers, the nurses, right, who are struggling, running around like crazy, struggling to take care of all of these patients, they're burning out. Doctors who are struggling and running around like crazy, trying to take care of all these patients, they're burning out. Patients are burning out from the insane wait times, right, from sitting in a closet because there's no stretcher, there's no pillows, there's no gurneys around. There's no rooms around. They're sitting in a closet waiting to be admitted. They're sick as dogs, and they're not getting the kind of care that they should be getting.
1: Mm-hmm. But is, is this a problem uh, that you throw money at, or is, is that not the solution?
2: It's pretty complicated, Libby. It's, it's a whole bunch of factors, that have created this kind of crisis right part of it is there hasn't been enough money hospitals the budgets have been frozen so hospital funding has been frozen for a number of years up until last year when the government started increasing a bit of fun, extra funding throwing a bit of extra funding their way the thing is hospitals are businesses right they still have to supply they have to buy supplies they have to pay for their workforce and they have to buy and upgrade equipment right so all of that Stuff costs money and that cost rises with every year. Add to that the fact that at one end you don't have enough nursing home beds so as people get older, as people need more care, all of a sudden they can't cut it in their own homes, they can't cut it in retirement homes, they need 24-7 nursing care and so they need nursing homes but there's no beds available there. And then you add another layer on top of that, you've got these small hospitals being cut down. Dr. Michelle Cohen wrote an amazing article in the Huffington Post where she talked about how a lot of the move has been to take services out of rural hospitals and move them into these centers of excellence, these centralized urban hospitals, right? The big city hospitals where you get most of the services. That wasn't always the case. That's been a move over the last decade or so.
1: Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of them very good reasons.
2: Yes. And some of them are very good reasons. Problem is, these urban hospitals didn't get any extra funding to compensate for having to provide extra services.
1: Right? Oh, I get it. Um, Okay, Nadja, hold on. Uh, Let's go to the phones. We have uh, Deepa in Mississauga and Deepa, you're an emergency room physician.
2: I am.
3: Go ahead. You're on the air. Thanks very much. Um, And thank you for having this topic. It's incredibly important. Um, And as uh, Dr. Lam just mentioned, this is something that I've been seeing for the last 18 years that I've been working and every year it becomes scarier. So this has now become the norm. We no longer have a period of time where we have you know, an excess number of beds. We're always running short of beds. And so just because most people have trouble understanding what this means, I'm just going to put it to you in real, really simple terms. Um, if an emergency room has 30 beds to work with, and 25 of those beds now have patients admitted to them because there are no beds upstairs in the hospital, that means that I, as an emergency room doctor, have five beds to work with. And there are 40 patients waiting in my waiting room at triage with serious illnesses, chest pain, a fractured uh, femur, cancer, elderly patients, breathing problems. I didn't become a doctor to have to decide who out of the waiting room I should try to see next. I became a doctor because I wanted to help everybody in that waiting room with my skills and my knowledge. And I'm now being put in this position where I have to make a choice and say, you know, that person's pretty sick, but they're going to have to wait. And that just isn't fair. Um, it's not right it's distressing to the people who have to deliver that kind of care Um, the anger from the patients boils over at us and we are trying the best we can do to take care of these people and I, I just I would like the public to understand this so that when it comes time to decide where tax dollars go and who we put into power to allocate our funding that people make good decisions because as much as we 'd like to be the ones that make these decisions we aren 't we are just the workers. The people that make the funding decisions are government, and we need to choose the right government
1: yeah but but again, i mean uh, I, I know we 've talked about a, a lack of funding or a lack of enough funding, but um, I Personally, I'm, I'm not sure that money will solve the problem. A lot of it has to do with the way the system is organized. And, and it's, as you mentioned, the funding of other things, you know, the, the next level of care down, that also has a huge impact. So it's really, it's kind of the whole system.
0: Absolutely.
3: Um, but it, it needs, I think one of the pieces that's been missing for a number of years is involving people who are on the front lines who actually see the problems and know where the fixes at least lie. Like, at least we have some idea about the solutions. A lot of the decisions that are being made now are being made by people who have not, never touched a patient's hands, never looked into a grandmother's eyes and told her, I'm sorry, you're going to have to lie here for seven more hours with your hip fracture because I don't have a bed for you. Those you know- are that, that, because I have that knowledge, because the physician colleagues and nurse colleagues that I work with have that knowledge, we are so much more able to decide where things can be, where the fat can be cut, where the money needs to go, what services need to be implemented to fix the fact that in 30 years we have a silver tsunami that is going to deluge our emergency rooms. Like, if you think it's bad now, wait.
1: Okay, um, I'd like to bring our house doctor, Zachary Levine, into the conversation. He's also an emergency room physician, and uh, probably we will get to the topic we were supposed to discuss with him. But in the meantime, I think he's very well placed. He's in Montreal, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, in Montreal, things are even worse than they are in Toronto. Am I, am I correct?
4: <laughs> uh, they're not better. I okay uh, i mean i have a, a number of friends who work in toronto at the big hospitals but uh uh and i know that the problems exist there too i think that the but i do th- i don't know the numbers but i wouldn't be surprised if it's uh, worse here i mean we certainly have incredibly long wait times and you know the the people who are triaged as uh you know code ones people who need emergency treatment get very rapid treatment but everyone else waits and there's a lot of factors that uh that go into that but one of them certainly is that there's nowhere for them to go on the wards there's no beds on the wards so they just back up into the emergency department
1: yeah i mean it's always the emergency department i mean i i have to tell you uh and i when i moved to uh toronto after a stint in the states when i was a very young reporter and i think the year would have been let me see 83 Three, maybe, something like that. 1983, I think the first b- big series that I did was Overcrowding in the Emergency. <laughs> so uh, people, it has ever been thus. I, I don't doubt for a minute that it's worse now. Um, how much of a factor is an aging population? Um, Nadia?
2: It's a huge or? factor. A huge factor. As people get older, they have more chronic illnesses built up. They have more um, they have more medications that they have to take, they're more prone to injury, their body's ability to heal starts, it's not as great as when they were six-year-old as, as it is. At, when they're 60, it's not as great as, when it, as it was when it was they were six years old. All of that starts playing a role. And the other thing is that we just saw recent articles talking about how the number of elderly people, so people over age 65, 70, 75, and so on, now outnumber the number of kids this is a huge population pressure that's going to be coming and hitting the hospitals over the next decade and we need to prepare for it the hospitals they can barely manage with the need that's out there right now the patient need and the patient expectations and and the patient requirements that are out there right now there is no reserve to deal with what dr sony and what others have called the silver tsunami that's going to hit our shores. There's just no reserve. that's okay. built into the system.
1: Okay. Uh, Deepa, uh, before we let you go, um, you're doing great work. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us?
3: Uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's such a big topic, I don't even know where to start, but I would like patients to understand that when they come to the emergency room, the people that are delivering that frontline care are absolutely doing the best they can. and. To, you know, to, to understand that we are working with extremely strapped resources. Um, we don't want to be delivering care like that. The hospitals are doing the best they can. And if, if the public wants this to change, then they have to mobilize the resources. And that means voting with their feet when the next election happens.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with Libby nimer on zoomer radio
1: welcome back we're talking about hospital overcrowding we have dr nadia alam president-elect of the ontario medical association we have dr zachary levine our house doctor who is an emergency room physician in montreal and let's go to alvin now because alvin was recently a patient in hospital hi alvin
5: I hope you can hear me, Lini. Thanks for taking my call.
1: Okay. Uh, Are you in the car or something?
5: Yeah, I'm in the car driving.
1: Okay. Go Uh, ahead.
5: I think the funding is okay. But I think the money, most of the funds are being wasted because they are hiring staff from agencies.
1: Okay. Uh, What was your experience in the hospital?
5: Yeah. Uh, And there is no kind of walking in the hospital between 8 o'clock in the evening and 2 o'clock at night. Everybody rushes to emergency.
1: Right. What was your experience?
5: My experience was not good. There was a nurse who was trying to take off my blood and she couldn't find my vein. The second nurse came, same problem. And the other nurse, then the third nurse came and got my blood off. I was very unhappy.
1: Well, that's, that's a whole other problem. You know, they used to have nurses called IV nurses that specialized in getting blood from veins that are difficult. And I know this because I have veins that are difficult. And, uh, a lot of the hospitals got rid of that specialty. And, uh, that's where you can have, uh, a problem because, uh, you know, um, it, it's not so much the nurse as your vein and my vein. And, uh, you know, if you don't specialize in that, it can be a problem. Uh, but was it overcrowded? Were you in a hallway?
5: Yeah, I w- and I was on chemo. So I had to go in every couple of weeks. Yep. And a person who comes who has murdered somebody or has committed a crime, he goes first in the hospital. His photograph is taken because they don't want to waste the policeman's time and people with heart conditions are delayed. Okay.
1: Okay, Alvin. Uh, you've given us a lot to uh, think about there. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Zach.
4: Yes. Well, I, I, yeah, Alvin brought up a few interesting things. And actually, I mean, one of the things he talked about is difficulty getting a in. And that's, uh, I mean, obviously it's not hospital overcrowding, but yes, that happens all the time. And certainly people who need intravenous access frequently uh, have, more dif- uh, have more difficult veins, as they say. And, and you're right, there, there are certainly more experienced nurses who are better at getting veins, and usually we try and get those people to try on the people who have difficult veins. In terms of who's seen... Uh, more rapidly I, um, it's interesting what alvin's saying about you know criminals or them not wanting to wait Yeah i time. i'm not sure
1: that that's true <laughs> uh, I hope not you know i mean yeah. in general
4: one of the things i like about what i do is it doesn't matter who you are you you know I, I get paid the same no matter who i see and what i so it doesn't matter if you're wealthy and famous it doesn't matter if you're you know homeless and that's the beauty of our medicare system um, so now i'm not i'm not naive and certainly some people Bring things to the table, and there 's there's always going to be pressure on physicians but i 'd like to think that it 's a relatively equitable system, but the problem is people who can wait end up waiting. A long, long time
1: well I- exactly, I mean you know uh, doctors take an oath and and uh, maybe somebody who uh, Alvin perceived as a bad guy, yeah. maybe they were a bad guy, uh, is in uh, a more acute, rougher shape, and has to be seen first than somebody who is frankly suffering a side effect from chemo and is really sick uh, Nadia well you know that happens right
2: it certainly does, it certainly does emerges based on a triaging system where the sickest get seen first. It's kind of like what Dr. Levine just said. It was code ones, which are the most emergent treatments, right? Those are people who, if you don't see them right away, if you don't treat them right away, they're gonna die. These are the huge trauma cases that come through. The people who've had cardiac arrest where their hearts have stopped and they need CPR, those are the ones that are are code one. The ones who are bleeding, the ones who have massive heart attacks and are very unstable, they always get seen first. And like he said, Everybody else waits and waits, and those wait times are getting longer. People pack bags now to go to the emergency (laughs) department because they know they need to bring food. Some of them bring changes of clothing when you've got kids, you bring several diapers and lots of snacks because you know you're going to be sitting there a long time
1: bring people bring bring stuff to read, crossword puzzles, exactly. sudoku so I'm that just you don't waiting get to
2: Someone to show up with an air mattress one
1: day. <laughs> 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 you know that's I don't know if that's funny or sad. Let's hear from Mary in Ottawa. Hello, Mary. Hi. Um, I'm a physician,
6: and I've had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Allen, and um, it's it, she's one heck of a doc, and she's a really good spokesperson. I really liked the way that, uh, Nadia, you said that we see patients, that other people who are making decisions do not. I'd like to also point out a bigger picture, which is that our hospitals function certainly Many of them at over 100 percent capacity, and it's not just old people. Our flagship sick kids in Toronto functions at over 100 percent capacity, and there's not an old person to be found.
1: Well, that in thank your- you, thank you very much for pointing that out because uh, sometimes I get the feeling that. Older people, Zoomers, are getting blamed for a lot of things, blame in quotes, uh, that really are not, it, it's not Thanks. because of them. I mean, yes, as you get older, you need more, more care and there's more hospital, but, but that's, that's not necessarily the source of the problem. And Please go I, ahead.
6: May, may I add to that that these older people have paid their whole lives to build the system we have now, and they are using it. That is their right. And that was the promise of the government. But the other point I wanted to make is in Europe. They have millions of data points to show that you need a certain number of beds and you need to run at 85% capacity. Anything more than that is dangerous to patients and we can't handle any emergencies. We need a certain number of doctors. Canada spends more in the average OECD country on health care. Yes. We have fewer hospital beds. We have fewer doctors. We have fewer MRIs. We have fewer CTs. That begs the question, where does the money go? And the money does not go to frontline care.
1: It goes that to administration, right? Uh, not
6: hospital administration. Hospital administration is all t- steady at about 6%. It goes to the fact that the government seems to think that we need lins, sublins,
1: mental... Well, to uh, me, that's administration. That's administration. And they just added, I don't know what's happened to these new sublins, but they've just added a whole other level.
6: And whenever there's a problem, they don't look at these big studies with millions of data points. They get together a commission, a bunch of people, throw millions of dollars at it and study it again. We have the research, we know what to do, and we don't need to have a lot of bureaucrats managing it this way. Uh, That would just be my point.
1: uh, Mary, amen. Thanks for your call. (laughs) Uh, uh, The other doctors on the line, we're starting to run out of time. I'm going to try to uh, take a bit more, but uh, uh, Zach, do you think there's a problem because every province has a different system?
4: I think every province has its own problems, for sure. And, you know, it it could be a source of solution if actually there was someone who could have a bird's-eye view and look at all the different provinces, see what's working and see what's not working. Uh, And, I, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on any of this. Dr. Alam is much more than I. But um, I think, yes, I mean, in some ways, having these massive structures are good in some ways. They can be in terms of efficiency and not replicating uh, jobs. But on the other hand, you know, it's always nice to have smaller things that are actually controllable and where, where you can actually have uh, some kind of feedback mechanism if something isn't working. So I think it's, it's good and it's bad, to be honest.
1: Okay, I'm going to try and take Crystal in Toronto in 30 seconds. Can you tell us about the bad experience you had with overcrowding?
7: Yes. Thank you for taking my call, Libby. I lost my father three months ago.
1: Sorry to hear that. Uh,
7: Thank you. He passed away at North York Hospital. Uh, Long story short, um, my mom had him take him to the hospital Monday by ambulance in the morning. By the evening, Monday evening, they said to my brother, you can take him home. There's nothing wrong with him. Tuesday, they're calling my mom at the house saying, we have to bring back your father. He has to come back to the hospital. We found something. So we take my dad back, my siblings, and I take my father back to North York. We waited in emergency for six and a half hours before they even took my father.
1: Sorry to hear that. they
7: requested for us to bring him back because it was an emergency. They finally put him in a bed, and um, they found that he had a lot of water in his lungs, and that's why he couldn't breathe. They drained him Wednesday. He was under quarantine. Thursday, he died.
0: Oh, I'm
1: so sorry to hear that.